0: As countries grow and change, they often put laws on the books that don't age well. That's even more evident at the state and local levels. For example, in Arizona, there's a law that makes it illegal for donkeys to sleep in bathtubs. Now, how could such a thing ever come to be, you might ask? Well, despite the silliness of the law today, its origin is based in a tragic disaster. Back in 1924, a dam burst that released devastating floodwaters into the town of Kingman. A donkey had taken to sleeping in an abandoned bathtub, and it floated away in the flood, prompting the town to have to step in and save the donkey from drowning. But the rescue effort was costly and dangerous, and so Kingman residents voted to outlaw donkeys from sleeping in bathtubs ever again. To clarify, donkeys were still allowed to stand in bathtubs, but sleeping in them was strictly forbidden. Go even further back, though, and the laws of the past make even our wildest legislation look like the Ten Commandments. Take, for example, the town of Halifax in West Yorkshire in England. Several hundred years ago, there was a law on the Halifax books known as the Halifax Gibbet Law. It allowed the lord of the manor to execute thieves caught in town by way of a swift and speedy trial, and the threshold for killing them was pretty low. If what they stole was worth 13.5 pence, or about $10 today— they were eligible for the death penalty. Suspected felons were held by the lord of the manor's bailiff, along with the property in question, but the aggrieved party wasn't allowed to recover the stolen goods, even if they had captured the thief in the act, until the bailiff had taken possession of it first. Once the suspect was apprehended, the bailiff would survey the richest and most well-respected men from the nearby towns and select 16 of them to sit on a jury. You know, a jury of peers— Everyone, including the defendant, the accuser, and the jury, then gathered at the bailiff's home. There was no courtroom or even a judge to preside over the trial, and the accused wasn't allowed their own defense counsel. The rules were simple, though. Both parties, the plaintiff and the defendant, told their sides of the story. If the jury of wealthy men who would never have stolen anything believed the accused thief was innocent, they were released. But if the person was declared guilty, then they were sentenced to death. And Halifax had a unique way of punishing its criminals. It was called the Halifax Gibbet. Their gibbet was a device made of two 15-foot-tall wooden posts set parallel to each other. Grooves were carved into one side of each beam to allow the vertical movement of a four-foot-long wooden block between them, and on the underside of that block, a seven-pound axe head. The whole thing sat on a stone platform and even required a small staircase to reach. The axe head was then raised by pulling a rope and securing it with a pin to the stone base. The prisoner was then lowered so his or her neck was just underneath the blade, at which point the pin was removed and the axe head was released. The rest, well, I'm sure you can use your imagination. And if the guilty party had been accused of stealing cattle or a horse, then a length of rope was attached to that pin, while the other end was tied to the stolen animal, or one of the same species. The beast was then set loose to run and pull the pin out, sealing the criminal's fate. But there was a loophole in the system. If the thief somehow managed to escape the gibbet and the forest in which it had been erected, then they were free to go. Only two men ever managed to make it out alive, though. One man was smart and never came back. The other tried his luck seven years later by returning to Halifax, only to find himself once again under the gibbet's blade. It turns out he wasn't so lucky after all. The thing about the Halifax gibbet was that it was simultaneously ahead of its time and antiquated. Other towns had already moved on from using the gibbet for their executions by the 17th century, but Halifax kept up the tradition until 1650, having started it all the way back in 1286, 500 years before France introduced their own version and took credit for the invention the name for that same device? The guillotine. The Old West in America actually isn't as old as we think. Despite the common belief that it ended toward the close of the 19th century, the Old West actually lasted until about 1920— But it wasn't all outlaws and gunslingers everywhere. Real progress was being made in places all over the country. Take Wyoming, for example. On May 11th of 1920, three months before the United States would grant women the right to vote, a historic election took place in the small town of Jackson. Now, early on, Jackson had garnered a reputation for itself as a haven for the criminal element. Cattle thieves and murderers had often hid there due to its relatively remote location in the mountains. But in 1920, the town's residents had other matters to attend to—an election. Up for grabs was the position of mayor, as well as a few seats for councilmen. Well, councilmen were what most people expected. Instead, the town went in a different direction. Grace Miller, Rose Crabtree, Genevieve Van Vleck, May Deloney, and Faustina Haidt had put their names on the ballot that year. Each of them were up against a rival male candidate, and in the case of Mrs. Crabtree, Her opponent was actually her husband. And much to everyone's surprise, each of the women won their respective roles, with Grace Miller becoming mayor of Jackson, while all the rest joined the council. From there, they appointed several other women to serve underneath them in various positions within the local government. One such woman was Pearl Williams. At only 22 years old, Pearl had been tasked with the daunting job of town marshal. The job was exactly what you might think it was, too. She was responsible for apprehending the unsavory characters in town and putting them in jail. A building, by the way, that lacked doors at the time. In a role that would have given anyone pause, she stepped up to the task. Thankfully, there weren't many outlaws to deal with. Despite Jackson's early reputation, it hadn't been a criminal hideout for some time. But the few bandits that she did come across treated her with respect and followed her orders. The press, of course, wrote numerous articles about the town run entirely by women, including one in the Jackson Hole Courier titled, Women Now Rule Bad Men's Town, and the thing they had an especially hard time believing was that it had a woman marshal. But Pearl proved all of them wrong. She got so sick of answering the same question from the media that one day she finally told them that she had earned the job by killing three men and burying them herself. It wasn't true, of course but it certainly shut the reporters up. It took almost no time for the new consul to get to work improving Jackson. They noticed that very little had gotten done while the men were in charge, and their new strong-arm tactics earned them the nickname the Petticoat Rulers. First on their docket, taxes. When Grace and her colleagues took office, they found that only $200 were in the town's coffers. It wasn't nearly enough to push through their new agenda, so they started collecting taxes from everyone in town. The money was put toward a variety of expansive projects, including graded roads, a new cemetery, and the installation of electric wiring. In two weeks, they had over $2,000 available. They had also passed ordinances meant to beautify the town and reduce the noise pollution caused by fireworks. The women had been placed in their roles thanks to Progress, and in turn, they were going to bring Progress back to Jackson. But if the 19th Amendment wasn't ratified until August of 1920, how were a group of women elected to run a small, western town once besieged by criminals? That's because states and towns all across the country had already been giving women the right to vote. And Wyoming, the equality state, accomplished it in 1869. Grace Miller and her council did such a great job, they were elected again for a second term. Some even stayed on for longer. They had proven that women had every right to serve in politics right alongside men. And more importantly, they proved that women get the job done. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.